Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ed Gross, and this is Vampires and Slayers, the podcast where we explore the worlds of the undead and those who want to dust them in film, television, fiction, and legend. We're kicking things off with a look at one of the most significant portrayals of a vampire in history. Jonathan Frid as Barnabas Collins on the daytime soap opera Dark Shadows. He played what was the first sympathetic, angst-driven vampire, paving the way for the likes of Lestat, Angel, Nick Knight, and Edward Cullen, among many others. There's something significant about starting things this way. Dark Shadows, coupled with Universal's Dracula, served as my gateway drug into the whole concept of vampires, a world I've never really left through the decades. Back in 2000, it led me to co-create one of the first web series ever, Dark Commandos, about a team of vampires carrying out covert missions for the government, and now has led to this podcast. There are two interviews in this episode. The first is with Mary O'Leary, producer and director of the documentary Dark Shadows and Beyond, The Jonathan Frid Story which is being released on October 5th. The second is the first part of my own interview with Jonathan, conducted in his then New York City apartment in the summer of 1983. I remember when the print version of that interview was published, and he admitted to me that I had apparently gained some insight into him that he wasn't entirely comfortable with. For a 23-year-old kid getting the opportunity to meet with a childhood idol a number of times, and then getting such praise? Well, needless to say, it's a pretty special memory I'll never let go of. More of this interview will be posted in upcoming episodes. And please bear in mind that the sound quality is based on a nearly 40-year-old cassette tape. What was the thing that made you want to do this documentary? When I met Jonathan in 1985 and got the opportunity to become his co-producer of his theater company, Clunes Associates, under whose banner he toured his one-man shows, it was such a marvelous time. I mean, I learned so much about him. I was doing something I'd never done before. How do you get bookings at universities? So it was a, a fun time, a challenging work experience that all these years later, when I was contacted, would you like to do this? I said, this is my homage to Jonathan. He was a fascinating person. I had a delightful time working with him. And this was my time to tell my story. Uh, Obviously, it's Jonathan's life. It's the story of Jonathan Frid. But it's important. Part of it is includes my story of my working with him. And it was the first time that uh, I really was able to put together for myself that experience, reflecting back on it, um, looking, uh, as I say, like 30 years later. And so that's really why when offered, I immediately jumped at it. 
and was to to honor Jonathan's legacy. Right. Absolutely. But the interesting thing is now you're doing a, a documentary on a subject where there's that pocket of his life, which was dark shadows in which he was covered extensively everywhere. You know, he was a media sensation like the show was at the time, you know, or he made the show, the media sensation. How hard though, is it though to do the research and paint the portrait of someone before dark shadows I mean, after Dark Shadows, of course, because you got to know him. So that makes it a little differently. But take away Dark Shadows. How difficult is it to piece together that life in the kind of depth that you would want a documentary to go? When I worked with Jonathan, I did a side project for him, which was when he was heading towards retirement, Equity, Actors' Equity, the union he'd been in for years, uh, didn't have all the records of all the work that he had done in the theater. And so actors were asked if they were in plays in the 50s, put together a copy of the review, a copy of the playbill so that it can be presented to the union. And then they could evaluate how long, how many weeks were worked, and then they would figure out pension. So Jonathan asked me if I would help him with that. And he had all types of records. He really was someone who was really terrific at saving things. So I put together a list of every play he had done, uh, the dates, who was in the cast, reviews. So I had done that project and I had kept a copy of it in my files. So I did have notations and records of plays that he had done in his career before he got into Dark Shadows. So I used that as a way of beginning my research um, calling certain universities and locating like where photographs might be. That was super helpful for me to have, but it was also being able to reach out and find someone who was alive, who could speak to me and tell a little bit about that experience of working with Jonathan, such as Barry Fuller, who's an actor who was with Jonathan in Midsummer Night's Dream Regional Theater production in Memphis, Tennessee in 1965. So it was to, to meet, to, to locate those people. Um, so I had never done a documentary before. And so it was sort of exciting to throw myself in and to figure out, okay, doing the research, getting interviews together, writing questions. But ultimately for any documentary, there has to be a story you're telling. So that was one of the things I really sat down as I looked at all this material I was putting together in videos. What is the story I wanna tell? And what I structured is a story about a man who had a passion for the stage, a love for the craft of theater, and was pursuing his art. And I was very fortunate that through a family member uh, of obtaining letters that Jonathan had written to his parents in the 1960s about the trials and tribulations of being an actor. So that was enormously helpful in formulating what it was like for him at the start of his career when he first came to New York City and helped me tell my story. What for you, what, you know, obviously you had gotten to know him very well, but what were the revelations? I would imagine the, the more you dig, the more revelations there are. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that came out in your research that surprised you. There were certain people that I spoke to. There were stories that I didn't know that people shared. Uh, that was wonderful. Uh, certain things about his family, I had met some of them when Jonathan moved back to Ontario in 1994, end of 1994. 
I went up several times in the late 90s to visit him and met family members. Um, some people I had stories about and now I had a face to go with a name. Uh, and again, I tried contacting certain people that weren't here anymore, but others who maybe I had briefed them at one time, you know, really shared some personal things I didn't know, almost particularly maybe about the latter years when he came back there. Um, because for 40 years, he lived in New York City. And even though he went back and would visit, um, they too didn't have much time with him until he retired up there and right. got to spend time with him. I'd say just some personal things I didn't know, but they definitely added support in my story about the man that I knew him to be. For the viewer, for the person, people who again know Jonathan as Barnabas Collins and from Dark Shadows, what for them do you think is going to be the most surprising aspects of this documentary? Well, certainly some of the performances that he did. Um, I'm very fortunate to have obtained uh, through a lot of research uh, him performing Shakespeare um, in 1961. Uh, That's I'm great. Just thrilled to find that, and I think that will be a real surprise to people who saw him do Shakespeare in his readers' theater presentations, or at a Dark Shadows festival, or on his website, but not actually in performance in costume at, at the height of his uh, his career um, in the theater. So I think people will be thrilled by that, um, and again, see sides of him. He was always very gracious with fans. He appreciated his fans. Um, and that uh, comes through in the documentary, again, through certain individuals who, who had been fans that became more than fans in terms of, like myself, um, that worked with him and how he treated them. Uh, so there's, you learn a little bit more about the character of who he was. He was a very fun man, entertaining, a great storyteller. And I think that people will have some insight into who he was. You know, there, there's that alchemy between actors and characters that happen not as not super often, but people like I, I would use Sean Connery as James Bond, William Shatner as Captain Kirk. I mean, Christopher Reeve as Superman. Jonathan as Barnabas Collins. What was that alchemy? What do you feel was that connection between actor and character? that just elevated both, basically. Well, there certainly were parts of Jonathan. I mean, he was raised in uh, Canada, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, in a tr traditional, almost Victorian style setting. And so the character of Barnabas has a bit of Royal Shakespeare about him. And that sort of was a part of a background that Jonathan certainly grew up in and knew and understood. So how he presented himself um, really suited the role of Barnabas. I mean, in many ways, Jonathan really was uh, an old fashioned gentleman. Um, and so that was a part of the character, a little bit of himself, but he also immersed himself in a character his approach to acting was really understanding the character and then the lines will come. And he really studied and he was fascinated by Barnabas has to lie. He lives a lie. He's come out of a coffin 175 years later and he has to pretend to be a cousin who's just come off the boat from England. Right. Uh, so he's constantly juggle. And Jonathan has said to him, 
evil isn't uh, somebody coming and a ghost jumping out the the closet to scare you. It's what's evil is your friend looking at you and lying. So he really delighted in playing that part of the character. Um, But there is something that just came across the screen to the audiences that they connected and he was playing the man who'd been cursed to be a vampire. He didn't want to have to bite people and suck their blood. He um, gained the empathy of the audience. They were really drawn to him and felt bad for him and wanted to rescue him or help him. And that really was just enormous, had this enormous appeal. Um, and it just all sort of came together. Um, and sometimes it's just, it couldn't have been predicted. Uh, it just came together. I don't think people realize, though, that for anybody who's ever enjoyed, I don't know, David Boreanaz's Angel on, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Robert Cullen, you know, uh, Robert Patton as Edward Cullen, rather, on uh, in Twilight, these vampires with a soul, with sympathy, with, with angst, they owe all of that to Jonathan Fred and Barnabas Collins, because before that, vampires, there was no sympathy. They were the bloodsuckers who just wanted victims. Yes, Bella Lugosi. Yeah, Christopher <laughs> Lee. Dracula, I mean, Dracula, yeah. the way that Bella played Dracula, yeah. evil. Um, and Jonathan gave it, this exactly what you're saying. He was the sympathetic vampire, the vulnerable vampire. He didn't want to be this way. He was forced to be this way and to survive, he had to drink blood. And yes, he really was the, the first um, vampire that, that changed. It changed how these other vampires that came later that you've mentioned in Twilight and Buffy um, were directed to play that, that, that part of the sympathetic vampire. Right, absolutely. What's fascinating to me also about him is that here's this actor who, you know, when I spoke to him all those years ago, he had said to me that he had, I mean, he's told the story before, that he was planning on going to California to teach. And he got this phone call about Dark Shadows and he decided to do it just to earn a little extra money. He hit me as somebody who, opportunity came, he took it. He did the show. The show became a much bigger phenomenon than anyone would have ever imagined. And when it ended, he wasn't one of those guys that sat back, you know, languished in his home and, and watched 16 millimeter prints of his old work or anything. Like it was like, okay, that was a good ride. It's over. Now I'm moving on to the next thing, whatever that may be. Right. Well, he thought that is exactly that what you've just said. The show's over. I'm going to go on with my life. But what he didn't realize, which a friend told him, no, you're going to have a hard time because this character that you played is so seared into people's minds that they're not just going to let it go. I mean, the amazing thing is, is that Dark Shadows, after it went off the air in 1971 in the States, it started to be shown internationally. It became a huge hit in South America. And Jonathan went on two tours um, in 73, Paraguay and then Panama, um, to promote Dark Shadows. Um, and then, as we know, it came in the 80s. It was being broadcast in reruns on public television. And then on today, it's Amazon Prime, Decades TV. Um, it, it's never gone away. I mean, it's amazing. It went off the air 50 years ago, and it still can be seen today. Um, and he really didn't think that would happen. And then when it did, and he was being offered roles that were uh, horror type roles, and he did two. He did The Devil's Daughter, which starred Shelley Winters, 
and uh, Belinda Montgomery. And then he did Seizure, which it wasn't, he thought, intended to be a horror movie, overall horror movie. He found it an interesting psychological study of this author who creates characters in his stories and then in his nightmares, they come after him. But it, it, it is perceived as a horror movie. He was after another one and finally said no enough. Um, and he stepped away for a while. And when he came back, it was to the stage. Uh, um, so again, it's, uh, I mean, he, in the, in the 80s, as he was invited to come to the Dark Shadows fan conventions and he started to go, you know, he came to see, you know, that um, he, in, he enjoyed the character and he came to accept that people still loved him for playing that role. And he realized, well, I'll just help <laughs> to market my one man show. We can use that as the handle, you know, get them in the door because I played Barbus Collins, but they're going to be surprised to see me in a different light. Absolutely. And they accepted him, right? I mean, at those shows, they loved when he did his one man shows. Oh, they absolutely loved his one man show. Yeah. Um, I mean, when he was in Arsenic and Olace and toured the country, uh, there was a situation where people would come to the stage door who hadn't been to the show. Um, and that sometimes would disappoint him um, that he would encourage them to come back and play, see the play. Um, but I think that people that really appreciated him as an actor were happy to see him do something else. You know, when you look at, when you look at the state of, of dark shadows in 2021, is it, what's your opinion? Is it limping along? Does it still have strength to it? Is it being renewed at all in the sense of people's interest in it? I mean, what do you, how do you view the state of dark shadows in 2021? Well, I think that people uh, that are in their late twenties have approached me and said, I just watched this on, say, Amazon Prime. And I love this, this happened there, black and white. This is such a cool story. Right. And um, so it is pulling in young people. And there are the original fans who love that they can still watch it. And also there has been talk about a new series. Um, showrunner Mark Perry has been out there uh, pitching uh, his next generation Dark Shadows. And hopefully that will happen. For you now with this documentary coming out, when you look back at your friendship with Jonathan, your working relationship with Jonathan, the years you knew him, uh, and now you're doing this documentary for yourself, just what is the overall feeling of all of this? Well, it's definitely touches my heart that people will be able to watch this story. Um, I actually, my son is 21 and, um, while as a baby he was held by Jonathan, he doesn't know him or remember him. Right. Well, he watched it. So I felt he was very objective eye. And he came away and said, you know, mom, uh, it was very moving. And um, so the fact that this got through to him <laughs> was <laughs> to me a, a mark that I think um, the documentary will be well received, um, which is what I want for people to really see Jonathan, full-rounded person that he was and other work that he did and, um, and get to know him beyond his role as Barnabas. Vampires and Slayers will be right back. And when we return, the first part of our classic interview with Jonathan Frid. When did you decide to become a follow actor as a career? Oh, it was a hard, I don't know, it was a hard decision. When I was young, 
this will be in my volumes, by the way. And you'll see the first play I was ever in of any consequence in my last year of prep school. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be my future. I can, I'm a good actor. But I, hadn't, I couldn't really make up my mind to be professional. It didn't occur to me to be a professional until I was in the Navy. And there was a friend of mine in the Navy who was definitely coming to New York after war. And he was going to become a professional actor. So the fact that I had a friend in the Navy who was going to be a professional actor gave me the same incentive to be a professional actor. That was in 1945, 44, 45. But um, the first play I was ever in prep school where I was astounded myself and my family and my friends as, as, as a budding actor, so to speak, that was in 30, 1940. So 1940 was my first inclination. 1945, I thought, if my friend can do it, I can do it. And my family never objected. So. Were there any actors in your family? No, no acting. Uh, they sort of are actors in a way. My, my mother's side of town, the McGregor's, they were all frustrated actors. My uncle used to tell my mother when they were children living in a little village near Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, in those days, the turn of the century, they had a stagecoach, and mother apparently voiced an idea that she'd like to be an actress, and my uncle said, the only stage you'll ever be on is the stagecoach between Waterdown and Hamilton. <laughs> so obviously she had, she could have been, I think my mother would have been a much better actor than myself, because she she has a more drive than I do, and she uh, gets things done faster than I do. And, um, although her memory is, is not much better than mine, but of course that's because she's old now. But uh, she probably would have made a much more successful artist, more successful acting person on the stage. She probably would have been a star. She has a certain, she has great charisma and uh, and more drive, I think, than I have. And I have a little bit of my father's uh, gentleness of nature. I, I like to think of it. What were among the first roles, and what was your feeling going for an audience for the first time? Well, that first, my most important role I ever had in my life, of course, was the first one, first class play, school play. It was more than a class play. It was the school play. It was called The Rivals by Brinsley Sheridan. In those days, you know, in school, you never put on modern plays, you know, modern musicals like they do at all the schools nowadays. You put it on classics, but that satisfied me. As a matter of fact, that's all I ever did for the longest time as a child, teeny bopper, was to do classic roles. And I always started off. I started off my life being the, the uh, I won't say the dirty old men, but the, the old villains. I was playing heavies when I was sixteen. I was sixteen at the time I did the Rivals, and uh, I seemed to get younger and younger and younger as my life, as my real life, I got older and older. But when I first started off, I was considered a heavy, uh, just like in football. Believe it or not, I played uh, football at prep school, and I was a center lineman because I was the heaviest student in the school. Somehow, heaviness went with solidity, and solidity went with with heavy roles. <laughs> a heavy role is figuratively speaking, but it's also literally. You know, that's, to play a heavy, you have to be heavy, heavy, and. Uh, so I was playing roles like, uh, like uh, uh, Sir Anthony Absolute, who's this character in The Rivals, 
neighborhood of Lady uh, Mrs. Malaprop. Uh, she made she's become famous in the English language because somebody can't use words properly. They say they made a, I can't think of the word myself. A mal, uh, a malaprop or somebody who, in other words, it's a, bad, it's a misused word. She was always using malaprops. Malaprops. Okay. That word is now the word in the language comes from the name of that character. Well, anyway, that was the play that started my career. And uh, fortunately, Mrs. I was sort of teamed up with her in the play, as I recall. And when we made our first entrance, she does all the talking. And I thought, thank God she's talking, because I was so nervous, and I was so puffed up, and I couldn't have gotten a word out. And I had about three or four minutes while she talked, babbling back and forth with somebody. And then I could get my bearings on the stage and get my breath, and I got my breath just before my line came. And I, by the way, my, my memory had gone. I couldn't remember my line anyway when I first came. So it just came to me with my breath when I was supposed to talk, and I just boomed it out. And there began my career that very minute. I can remember it like yesterday, and that was 40 years ago, at least. And, uh, and then in the next year, I went to a year of what, high school, regular high school, and, went, and I did uh, Charles II in a rather race, racy play. I should, uh, as a matter of fact, we did do racy plays, at least at the, at the public high school they did that year, called And So to Bed, which was about Samuel Pepys in the reign of Charles II. And it's a sort of a, not a, it's a play about Samuel Pepys's life with the ladies. He wouldn't call it, he didn't say talk about it, the sex in those days, it was, but he was a philanderer. And uh, Charles was his competitor, Charles II, he was Prince Charlie, and, and he, was, he was a Mel Gwynn, you've heard of Mel Gwynn. He had his mistresses, and he was quite a rake himself. And it's sort of, it's a bedroom farce, is what it is. That's the word I'm saying. It's a bedroom farce. And, uh, but I kept playing him as a pompous soul king rather than playing the bedroom aspects of it. Um, in a sense, I was, I was too heavy in that role. But I played Charles II. And then I went on the, the next big role at university, which two or three years later, and I played Father Barrett in the Browns of Wimpole Street. I played Dr. Sloper in the Heiress. Uh, in more recent years, I played um, Capulet, that's Romeo and Juliet's father, Romeo and Juliet, you know, for, forbidding the marriage, forbidding, I always forbidding people to do things. And um, even though, and I always used to say, I, I could have, my grandmother must be turning in her grave so often because she thought I was going to grow up and be a Presbyterian minister. Well, as it turned out, I, I played many Catholic priests instead of a Presbyterian minister for real. I played many Catholic priests in plays. But the irony is that I was, she would have been glad to know that they were always villains. You know, they were, I was playing, I was playing you know, inquisitors, you know, in the days of the Inquisition. I was playing priests that were forbidding this or, or trying to destroy this person, destroy this group, and, you know, the prejudice. It was always playing heavy. And of course, the great heavy role I ever played was, was uh, well, next to Barnabas. I guess Barnabas, I suppose, is the ultimate heavy role. Although, ironically enough, uh, he was also, when I, with Barnabas, I finally reached my own age, in a sense. I mean, playing Barnabas, he was supposed to be about 40-ish, or whatever. And he was a romantic man, as well as a heavy, so he combined the two things. Uh, but I was going to say that the, the ultimate heavy role, really, as far as billets are concerned, was in 
was Richard III. Of course, it's my favorite of all. Lord, I'd love to play again. Um, but I'm almost getting too old for that. But um, anyway, um, those were the kinds of roles, the main principal roles I've played in my life. Sir Anthony Absolute, Father Barrett, Dr. Sloper, uh, Capulet, uh, uh, Richard III, uh, various Catholic priests. Um, so anyway, I, I am giving a long answer, but that, those are the roles that I've played, and, and uh, I, I got a great delight in playing them. And uh, also, of course, I've played comedy, too. And I, that's the part that I have not fulfilled in my life, and I hope yet that I will. I mean, I've played comedy, and I can be very good at it. Be, be very easy. That's me. So anyway, uh, um, that works for me too, but I've never had that much chance. But I that, that part of it doesn't um, doesn't get me down. I, I, I've I've enjoyed playing the heavies, although Richard III has great comedy. Moments in it, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delightful role for playing. You can play it much more comically. But I was playing it for horror. I love to play it for for yeah. horror's sake, you know. But mental inner horror. I mean, I, the Barnabas that Fang business. Uh, I, I never created. I never thought I created fear. I always thought I was foolish doing that part of it. <laughs> but uh, what the, the the horror part that I like is uh, is uh, that lie. There's nothing any more horrible than the secret. And to look at somebody between the eyes is telling you a lie. You know it's a lie. Mm -hmm. Somehow that scares me more than anything else. Um, of course, I've never been physically attacked by somebody with a knife or a gun. That would me a lot more or teeth. But uh, <laughs> that may be really quite horrible. But in terms of theater, in terms of drama, I like the inner drama rather than the outward manifestations, the cliches. Of, I mean, I, nothing more bores me. Bores me more in, in, in primetime television or, or movies because it's just the constant killing and violence. It's it's boring to yeah. me. I mean, everything from westerns to take gun battles in New York streets, boring now because there's nothing more horrifying than to see it for real. I don't want to see a gun shoot shoot out on a New York street, mind you. I'd, I'd faint right away if it <laughs> happened. But on television, it's just so cliche, it's so boring, and and. Uh, and always has been to me. I don't like to see violence. Not that it upsets me. It does. It just puts me to sleep. It yeah, puts right. me. Yeah. To, it doesn't doesn't it doesn't upset me. It just puts me to sleep. But a real psychological drama of of inner conflict of of, of thought processes, mental processes that are being manifested, looking between the eyes, confrontation between two people, of mental. An emotional confrontation is, is really the real guts of drama to me. It's more gratifying. Than yeah, it's. yeah, and that's why as Barnabas, there are many, 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 many uh, scenes in, in, in that show. I was thrilled to do um, that. That show came alive many times for me. Uh, is the only thing I was regretting is that I couldn't get it under my skin enough. You know, I, I couldn't. Uh, didn't have the time to prepare it as well as I wanted to. But there are many, many scripts that were that were bad. But and that's any play you ever in. I have to say, there's always the better parts and there are always the weaker parts. It's just uh, that's life. You know. 
but there were many, many scenes from Dark Shadows that, that made it, it, it infinitely worthwhile to do. It was quite, they were not good scenes to do. But the, 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 the fangy ones were the ones I felt I want to get rid of them so quickly and all that. Yeah, I know. That's the couple of ratings, couple of things. But I, that's, uh, that I never understood. I don't know why that scared anybody. To me, they looked foolish, those scenes. But what did scare me sometimes is to see myself telling a lie. And of course, I've often told the story that my best acting was one of the third, the third performance I was in, third show. And I thought I was going to be fired because I got the lines all mixed up. And I was very nervous when I first time the show. And I kept waiting to be fired for the whole weekend, and a telephone call came in, and it not, nothing happened. And I went back there Monday morning, and I said to the director, "I said I must apologize for that. I'm sure you people will never forgive me for that performance on Friday." And he said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "What do I mean? I've got all those lines mixed up. I've got all the introductions wrong. I was introduced to the family when I first came in, right way back in one of the first episodes, and I got the." She said, oh, yes, you mixed up a couple of names, but that was all right. You were on close-up, so we didn't know who you were talking to. And, oh. you know, you always think, you, because you made one mistake or two mistakes, you've made a dozen. And then right. you mixed a couple of names up. Anyway, but two weeks later, I saw that episode on the air. And it was one of the best episodes oh, I ever yeah. did, because I was nervous. I was lying. In the early episodes. I was lying. Yeah. I was nervous. And, uh, and of course, Barnabas is, is lying and, and nervous. He's, 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 Barnabas, the company he constantly played all the time, was the lie that he was not—he was somebody other than what he was. That the, the actor playing Barnabas had to remember all the time. The, the, he got the lust for blood every once in a while, but always the play on his mind was a lie. Is that your motivation in the movie? That's all I ever could think of. And of course, it played right into my lie as an actor. You know, pretending that I was fully confident, and I wasn't. Right. See, I was lying that, oh, I'm calm, I'm comfortable. Just as Barnabas is lying, I'm calm, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm, that, I'm this nice cousin from England, you see. And he wasn't at all. He's a, he's a sick, evil, unbelievable creep that the world is, that the light changed the world. I know, but I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. but he's, no, I don't mean whether he's nice or bad. He was always nice from the very beginning. Yeah. He was always nice. He was never really bad. But it was only bad in the sense that he was lying. And the uh, little boy recognized that yeah. horror of it. David, he, he, something he would say, he's not something wrong, and it would scare him. It was that sensing it was a lie. Um, what's his name? That Pat, Dennis Patrick played. Patrick Dennis. You know, he played the, the guy that was after the family jewels, and he's the one that suspected me. He suspected me. And it was those scenes where really? he, his, 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 his boss. Oh, oh, I don't know who you know, I can't remember. Whatever it is, you know, people think about putting it down on paper. But um, he, scenes with him, scenes with the little boy, were the, to me the scary things in that whole Because they were suspecting me of not being truthful. Not when you when you met anybody who's who you believe in and trust, and you suddenly sense that they may be telling total lies, kind of horrifying. To me, that's horror. Especially you know, when it happened in a love relationship. You know, when you think someone loves you and then they 
and they don't. You don't know it. That's horror. It's a horror. It's an it's a awful thing to suddenly see that person's lying. They don't love you anymore. They're just pretending. Even if they're only doing it to be nice, it's a horror. Well, if I'm experienced like that, you're right. It's, yeah, absolutely. Well, that, to me, that's horror. Yeah. Not, not flashing people, punching right. people, or stabbing people. At least in real life, that's what got awful. But in, in, in theater, it's the kind of drama I like to play. Dark Shadows and Beyond, the Jonathan Frid story, will be available digitally and on disc October 5th. For the latest vampire news, head over to vampiresandslayers.net. If you're into superheroes, check out the Voices from Krypton podcast. And for classic TV interviews, there's TV Retrovision. We hope you subscribe to the Vampires and Slayers podcast. Tell your friends about us and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.